This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to Libri. Thank you for coming out on a freezing cold night. I'm glad that's warm in here. Um, so, to give you a heads up for next week, uh, I'll give you the next two weeks. Um, next Friday, March 3rd, Dick is going to be lecturing on challenges to the modern university. Is there anything you want to say about that now or no? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good. Um, and then the following week, March 10th, Joshua will be lecturing on Teach Us to Pray, Solitude and Silence. I don't know if you want to say anything about that. Or... Uh, we're going to be, we're going to, uh, this guy Dietrich Bonhoeffer's mm-hmm. understanding of silence and solitude. Okay. And prayer. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, please do come out for that. Um, Tonight we are going to uh, reflect on self-control, and uh, I, w- I was going to prepare for this lecture, and then I decided to watch TV instead. Um, so this is what you get. <laughs> Just kidding. That was a joke. That was... Um, in all seriousness, uh, this is uh, the first part of what I think is going to be a two-part series, and my goal for the series, the first part is just to kind of clarify what we mean when we're talking about self-control, uh, and then in part two, shift to a discussion of the imitation of Christ, and specifically, what does it mean to imitate Christ in self-control? Uh, so next time, whenever that will be, hopefully next term... I'll, I'll be looking in a more focused way at the example of Jesus um, as someone with self-control, uh, both as he's referred to in the New Testament letters, but also obviously in the Gospels as well. Um, but tonight, um, I really want to just take a, a fly over the topic, kind of 5,000 feet um, much more broadly, trying to define what it is we're even talking about um, and what it is we're not talking about when we say self-control. And I am um, indebted to to a lecture, I'm not sure when when it was given, but uh, that Dick did um, on this topic a while ago. My goal was to do something on Jesus as a model for self-control, and then I started looking for lectures on self-control and realized that Dick did one like not too long ago. So, so um, anyway, <clears throat> this is engaging with a lot of the same same material. Um, but the longer I've thought about this topic and worked on it, the less adequate I am to address it, or less adequate I think I am to address it. Um, not a very self-controlled person. 
uh, certainly not in every area of my life. Um, I maybe like some of you, I struggle to see signs of growth in this area in my life. Um, I sometimes struggle to be disciplined in even the areas of life that I really care about, let alone the areas that I don't care about very much. Um, much of the time, and this is the problem, I do not struggle to be disciplined. Um, I can be self-indulgent and I can find ways to justify my self-indulgence. Um, so it's not so much that, that self-control has been tried and found wanting. Uh, it hasn't been tried enough. And uh, to misquote Chesterton, it's been tried and found difficult. <laughs> Um, I think he said that about his Christianity in general. It's not that it's been tried and found wanting. It's been tried and found difficult. <laughs> um, but I doubt that I'm alone in any of this. It's not like a totally unique confession that I just made. I think um, lacking self-control does not feel good, but we all experience some lack of it uh, to varying degrees. None of us have perfect mastery over our whole way of being in the world. And often we would rather just not think about it. There's a great Gillian Welch song. I'm not going to sing it. I'm just going to read a few lines. Uh, oh, me, oh, my, oh, won't you look at Miss Ohio running around with a rag top down saying, I want to do right, but not right now. Um, so... The very notion of self-control suggests that we will need to rein ourselves in. Uh, it'll mean developing the strength to bring about some sort of change in our lives, and it implies hard work and discipline and t- towards a different kind of life. And we might not want to change very badly. We may uh, be perfectly comfortable as we are. So these are some reasons why self-control doesn't get talked about very much. <laughs> But even for those who recognize the goodness of a new way of life and want to change, it's hard to get excited about hard work and discipline for many of us. But it's very, very important. Self-control is a very, very important virtue. Uh, and I think of it sort of as an overarching virtue that impacts every area of life. So if you think of this list in your head, I'm going to read out self-control and fill in the blank with a bunch of different things. And, and I want, I'm going to read it slowly and so you can sort of try to imagine what, what is implied by each one of these um, phrases. Self-control and spending money. Self-control and using words. Self-control and eating food. Self-control and parenting children. Self-control and praying. Self-control and sexual desire. Self-control and work. Self-control and leisure time. Self-control and anger. Self-control and humor. Self-control and caring for difficult people. Every area of your life in which you are present demands some measure of self-control. Um... But for Christians, it's, uh, it's not on many people's top five list of favorite Christian virtues. Um, while many of us see the rightness of it, our imaginations have not connected with it deeply enough to see the, the beauty of it. It's not often viewed as a beautiful thing. 
Um, and it's something that in our culture is viewed with great ambivalence. This is the first section I'm going to be um, talking about. I'm just going to muddy the water and, conf- and, and make everything confusing for a few minutes because this is sort of how <laughs> true to how self-control is viewed in our culture. Um, self-control is not just difficult to achieve. It's something that as a culture we're quite divided on. Depending on what media you tend to turn to, you could get completely conflicting messages about being in control of yourself. Uh, I found this today, this lovely quote from Morgan Freeman. Self-control is strength. Calmness is mastery. You have to get to a point where your mood doesn't shift based on the insignificant actions of someone else. Don't allow others to control the direction of your life. Don't allow your emotions to overpower your intelligence. Um, so on the one hand, most sensible people would say, maybe along with Morgan Freeman, uh, and with the help of many, many self-help books, there's plenty of self-help books that deal with self-control in one way or, the other, or, in one way or another, uh, but many, many sensible people would say that gaining control over yourself will improve your life. It's good for you. Uh, it's the way to succeed and get somewhere in life. It's the way to conquer unwanted or destructive habits, the way to realize your potential, the way to follow your dreams, all these things. If we study the people who've made it big in our culture, usually measured by uh, by money, they are almost invariably people with a great deal of self-control, at least in one or two areas of their life. <laughs> Morgan Freeman likes it. Um, but to some other people, uh, a lecture on self-control sounds like a lesson in, in how to be boring, um, how to stamp out all spontaneity in your life, how to suppress all your strongest desires and deny yourself all pleasure. Um, when these folks think of a person with great self-control, they might have a very different picture in their minds, uh, someone who's very cold and aloof and rigid in their personality were legalistic and stuffy. Maybe you might picture a very self-righteous preacher or a very tight-laced army general. Self-control. There is a certain glamour that's connected, particularly the more we we kind of um, immerse ourselves in pop culture, (laughs) there's a certain glamour connected with the idea of losing control. You think of the pop songs that contain some version of this message. Let's lose control together. Uh, let's do something crazy. Let's let's live like there is no tomorrow. Let's throw caution to the wind. Um, there's a lot of examples of this. I'm not gonna we're not gonna get into it. But the the one that I thought of that came to mind was <laughs> a number of years ago the song by Philip Phillips. Come out, come out, come out. Won't you turn my soul into a raging fire? Come out, come out, come out till we lose control into a raging... This is just... Losing control is is what it means to uh, let yourself go in romantic love and just experience life without restrictions. And um, Anyway. Uh, very often the idea of losing control is connected to sex, obviously. Um but it's more generically, it's it's a kind of cathartic unleashing of our emotions. Intense emotional experience is the goal of losing control. 
And so to exercise too much control in your life is to stifle something good. It's to miss out on the adventure and the beauty and the unpredictability of being alive. Uh, But it's also, to be in too much control, it's also to stifle the real you. And in doing so, it's to be inauthentic somehow. Uh, I think that for many people, there is an assumption, maybe it's kind of under the surface, uh, that self-control is really just society's norms and restrictions that we have internalized and that we're allowing to dictate our lives. So to intentionally lose control is an experience of freedom that gets in touch with the real you, supposedly. Uh, It's to break free and to find yourself. Whenever you hear the expression, follow your heart, that's, you can hear it any, any day you want. Um, whether it's in, in a pop song or in a Disney movie or in any number of different, different, uh, it comes from lots of, there's lots of voices in one way or another telling us to follow our hearts, right? Uh, it means something similar. Give full authority to your emotions and intuitions. And allow them to be your guides, rather than the external obligations from other people that you've internalized. And um, so, I, I think that this is a, a false hope that freedom is to be found in letting go uh, of all control. Nobody really wants to completely lose control of themselves for very long. Really, being out of control actually is not fun for very long. Um, the next morning comes. Uh, and plus, everybody depends on the self-control of other people just to survive. So it's a totally romantic, naive idea, uh, the, the let's lose control ethic. Uh, but I wonder whether, at least in part, the, the let's lose control ethic is a reaction against some of the destructive pressures of our culture today. doesn't mean it's good, but, it, but it, there's reasons why people maybe feel this way. Sometimes self-discipline, self-control is lauded, is praised, but in the service of goals that are unappealing and meaningless. So work hard and be disciplined, be self-controlled so that you can get good grades in high school, so that you can get into a great university, so that you can get good grades there, so that you can get a a prestigious job, get promoted in that job, and settle into the task of making as much money as you can before you die. This is... Not many people articulate it exactly like that, but for many people, there isn't much more meaning in life than that. And that's the goal of being disciplined, to achieve that. Um, Also, maybe just be respectable and conventional as much as you possibly can and don't step out of line and do anything too unpredictable. Uh, But if this is the goal of self-control, then who cares? I mean, I can sympathize with that attitude. Who cares? Why would I do that? But the supposed solution is not just to shake loose of society's overreaching expectations on us. It's to go all the way and relinquish even control of my my own life. Uh, That's the way to be free, truly. Uh, There is a reason, I'm not going to get into this tonight, but there is a reason why the song Let It Go basically captured the imaginations of three quarters of the people in this country, probably. (laughs) Of every age. Um... This idea of casting off responsibilities and being free and not having to worry about this at all and just completely giving yourself free reign. Deeply appealing. 
Um, even within the story Frozen, it didn't really get her anywhere. Neither does it in real life. <clears throat> so the very idea of self-control is kind of on a collision course with popular culture's idea of freedom and the self. These are, these are, these are not um, in harmony with each other at all. Another layer of ambivalence towards self-control comes from the economic sector. This is a point that Dick made in his lecture uh, that I found really interesting and very, uh, very true. In this wealthy capitalist society in which we live, we're given very mixed messages about self-control. On the one hand, people in the workforce are supposed to be very self-controlled. Show up to work on time, be diligent and responsible and thorough, work hard and produce products of quality, whatever they might be, even when you don't feel like it. Uh, stay late when your boss asks you to. Skip lunch on busy days. Be disciplined. Work hard. Um, on the other hand, the moment those same people punch out of work and go to the mall or log into their Amazon account, they're expected to lose all self-control and spend money like they're crazy people. Uh, so the expectation is for us to show great restraint as producers, but no restraint as consumers. And the economy depends on it. The economy depends on us uh, showing great restraint as producers and no restraint as consumers. There was I don't know if any of you noticed uh, during the Super Bowl, there was an ad um, for Timu or something. I'm not even sure what it is, but uh, this, the, the ad was, this, was, basically the title of the ad was Shopping Like a Billionaire. And it was such an easy way to buy affordable things, mostly clothes, that this woman, it features this woman walking through the street, hitting buy, 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 and all the things she's buying are just appearing on people as she walks by. And it, by the end, there's a little mechanical bird that's pecking the buy button on her phone. <laughs> and, and it's like shopping like a billionaire. This is such, you know, these deals are so good. I feel so rich. Um, I can shop like a billionaire. Anyway, that's just an example of the, the lack of self-control that's expected of us economically. <laughs> um, so, uh, there are a few reasons why we may have an, an ambivalent attitude towards self-control. That's putting it mildly. Um, I hope you're confused by now. Um, I want to show that, uh, ideally, my goal for this lecture is to show that the more we understand it rightly, the more life-giving and appealing we'll see that it really actually is. Uh, my next section, I want to talk a little bit about, we're getting closer. So, at some point, I'll actually talk about what it is, but it's going to take me a long time. Because <laughs> you really have to talk for at least three quarters of a Libri lecture about what you're not talking about. <laughs> Before you can say what it is you are talking about, it's important as a tr as traditional <laughs> in Libri. <laughs> you may have noticed. Um, hopefully by the conclusion, I'll say what I, what I mean. <clears throat> Uh, but what is the self without control? Uh, even the word control can have negative connotations to us. Uh, we don't like it when someone is too controlling. Uh, to call someone a control freak is not a compliment. Uh, a really bossy, micromanaging employ, uh, co-worker or whatever, uh, or an overly protective parent 
we say that these people have control issues, meaning that they want too much of it. And and this is fair enough. Um, some people do have control issues. Uh, but the idea of control itself is not bad at all. There's nothing inherently corrupt about control. It's only bad when it's out of proportion or when it's being exerted in some area where it doesn't belong. So it can be blown out of proportion. I can want too much of it in a certain context or I can want it in an area where I shouldn't want control at all or shouldn't expect control. So, um, a healthy measure of control rightly directed is a good God-given thing. And the, the alternative to that is chaos in our lives. So some control is good. Uh, this healthy control is called dominion. Dominion is an appropriate kind of agency that each person is supposed to have in their life. It's the power to actually have influence in the world, to make a difference around us. And this is something that Adam and Eve have in the garden. It's creational. It's not a result of the fall. Uh, it's something that has definitely been twisted and corrupted by the fall, but, but dominion itself is part of God's good design for what it is to be a human being. Uh, there are many things in life which are out of our control. That's obvious. Uh, as finite human beings, our influence only extends so far. But there are some things which are, at least theoretically, within our sphere of influence, right? Um, these are areas of life where to exert our dominion is good and necessary. For example, I may not be able to control other people and what they think. I may not be able to control the weather or the cat uh, or certainly not world events. But myself, my own actions, my own words, my own thoughts. This is a sphere of reality in which control is most appropriate and most possible, right? <clears throat> I don't have control over what another Boston driver says to me when we're driving in the streets of Boston. But I should have control over how I respond to what they say to me my words to that person, my thoughts about them, and my actions towards them. Those things are within the, the, the sphere of dominion that God has given me, right? I should have some control over those things. Um, this is the area where I should be able to make conscious decisions and then carry them out. So self-control is to have appropriate dominion over yourself. It's to have an influence on yourself, <laughs> Uh, or agency directed towards yourself. A minute ago I used the word theoretically. So we theoretically should, and I use that word because often, uh, even though my thoughts, words, and actions are part of reality that is most within my reach, self-control is brutally difficult to practice. And ironically, the very part of reality that's most within my grasp feels out of reach much of the time. And this is the source of deep frustration for, for most of us, our lack of ability to control ourselves. Think of these very typical things we may say to ourselves. Why did I say that stupid thing? That hurtful thing? That pointless thing? Uh, what was I thinking when I did that? What about, uh, I 
can't seem to stop thinking these horrible thoughts. Or, yesterday I didn't feel like myself. Or, when I did that, it wasn't me. All of these are familiar sentiments. I probably, hopefully not, but probably. Um, they're examples of our frustration at our lapses in self-control, our inability to control ourselves how we th- want. Um, why did I say that? What was I thinking? For many people, healthy self-control is out of reach because there's not a well-formed self to be in control. There's not, not a well-formed self to do the controlling. And this is sort of what I'm getting at by um, what is the self without control. Control is actually really important to, to being a, a self at all. Uh, <clears throat> it requires a coherent sense of identity, I think. Who am I? What do I consider to be of the greatest importance? What do I most long for? What's worth suffering for? What way of life should I avoid? Um, in Esther's words last week, she did a lecture last week and talked about what story am I in? These are, these are huge questions about our identity. How do I view my life and what kind of story it is? Uh, all those questions have to do with my own sense of who I am. And I need to be at least partially able to answer those questions. Maybe very few of us can answer them fully and perfectly, but we need to have at least an idea of the answer to some of those questions if we're going to learn to control ourselves. Uh, These basic questions about identity have everything to do with what standards I submit to. Self-control might be great, but control according to what framework? Discipline according to who? Uh, What goal do I have in mind? My view of who I am and who I want to be determines how I should control myself, doesn't it? It determines what I even mean by control. So without a firm sense of our identity and who we are, we do not know how to even begin controlling ourselves. <laughs> uh, but it's also sort of a feedback loop. Because without any self-control, we simply, if we truly don't have any self-control at all, I don't think this is untrue of most people, most of us have some. Thankfully, but but um, if we're truly without self-control, we actually don't have an identity. Uh, it's the same thing as not having one. So the two are very interdependent. I'll talk a little bit more about what that might mean. Um, there's a, a fascinating, very concise, but very um, evocative image from the book of Proverbs. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. And uh, I'm just going to take a few minutes to reflect on that as an image. What is what is the writer of Proverbs trying to get us to think about? In what way are we like a city left without walls if we don't have any self-control? Um, so think for a few minutes of all the benefits of living in a really good city. If, anyone, if anyone's lived in a, in a really lovely city... Uh, there's all kinds of wonderful aspects of city life. Exposure to culture, music, art, theater, good restaurants, um, safe places for your kids to play maybe, parks and playgrounds, 
relative security and protection from outside threats, order and public peace, availability of work, availability of housing. All these are, are aspects of, of what any good city should have. These are all important aspects of what make a city habitable and desirable. They're also the things that give a city its particular character. Now, if you take this image from Proverbs, a city without its walls knocked down, with its walls knocked down, sorry, um, this would be a terrifying image to anybody who had witnessed ancient Near Eastern warfare, uh, which involved invading armies and sieges and starvation in the city and merciless uh, practices. So it's a picture of defeat and complete vulnerability to have the walls of a city knocked down. There's nothing to keep anybody from walking in and taking what they want. In other words, there's no protection left for the things that make the city a good place to live. There's nothing left to protect the things that make the city a distinctive and unique place. When the boundary, the city wall, has been removed, there's no distinction between life in the city and the chaos of the wilderness. And the Old Testament is full of images of distinctions being broken down as a sign of God's judgment. <laughs> you know, There should be a distinction between life in the city and the wilderness. The jackals should not be coming into your home. The owls should not be nesting in your chimney. That's a sign that something has gone terribly wrong when those boundaries are obliterated. And so this idea of a city wall being broken down, and there not being really a distinction anymore between where we're supposed to live and the wilderness. Um... It's, it's a dire, a dire situation. So what does this mean if I am like a city with, without walls, if I lack self-control? It's, it's sobering. Um, if I have no ability to make conscious decisions for some things and against other things, if I either lack the principles that would help me to discern how to live or how not to live, or if I lack the motivation to let those principles govern my life... I will be destroyed. I will become hollowed out like a city that's been raided and pillaged. I will have no identity because there's no boundaries between me and anyone else who comes along. If I might do, think, or say anything in any given moment with no restraint, who am I? It's hard to say. If I just go along with whoever I happen to be in contact with at any given moment, who am I? To have no self-control is is just not to be a self. Um, Because it's through what we stand for and refuse to stand for, in large part, that our identity is, is formed. So to be a self requires some intentional boundaries that a person makes and tries to maintain like city walls but if we're honest uh, even for people who do have a well formed sense of what's important uh, it's still a struggle to live in a way that's consistent with that, with that value uh, fallen people are always divided within themselves so uh, we'll talk about that more in a little bit so what is self-control and what is it not, then? We're, get, we're, we're getting there. <laughs> um, it's not as simple as, as saying uh, it's our, our reason that is somehow triumphing over our emotions. 
this is a way in which some people think about self-control. I wonder whether the uh, the uh, Morgan Freeman quote is a little bit talking about that. Don't allow your emotions to overpower your intelligence. So in other words, to be self-controlled is to allow your rationality to be the boss over your emotions. Right? Um, that is a very typical way of thinking about it, I think. Um, but at least as we're discussing this as a biblical concept, it's not, it's not that precisely. The Bible doesn't actually encourage us to privilege reason over emotion or emotion over reason. Uh, neither is inherently reliable or unreliable. Both can reflect truth, goodness, and beauty, and both can be twisted and fallen. Both our, both our emotions and our reason. Uh, neither does the Bible actually spend much time drawing hard lines between reason and emotion, as if, as people, we can keep them in hermetically sealed compartments. <laughs> um, the Bible does frequently refer to the heart. And we, we talked about this quite a bit a couple weeks ago when Jeff Dryden was here visiting, um, lecturing on uh, the Bible and spiritual formation. But the Bible has a lot to say about the heart. And it does not mean the organ that pumps your blood. It do- also doesn't mean the seat of our emotional life, which is how we often use heart today. It's, it's, it has to do with our emotions. Uh, the heart is a very holistic term that refers to your your entire internal self, your core. So in biblical terms, it's with your heart that you reason and think and plan and hope and fear and love and trust and envy. Um, out of your heart, all these things come. All this is to say that uh, to conceive of self-control as reason triumphing over emotion is is a huge oversimplification. That's not really how humans work. Um, it's certainly not how the Bible talks about self-control. Uh, it fails to acknowledge the potential goodness, but also the potential fallenness of both reason and emotion. Our reason can lead us astray just as effectively as our emotions. Uh, our reason can be out of control just as much as our emotions. Uh, so what what else is self-control not? Let's see. We're, we're getting there. Uh, in its fullest sense, uh, sense, self-control is not the exercise of sheer willpower over our desires. That's another sort of dichotomy that we often think about. It's about you've got all these desires, uh, and self-control is about basically brutalizing them with your will, <laughs> crushing them down, and... Uh, Forcing them to submit. Um, people are familiar with the expression "white knuckling." To white knuckle, I think it's an expression that comes out of um, people struggling with alcoholism, uh, wanting to have a drink and managing to not drink by white knuckling, which is basically just it refers to holding on to something so tightly that your your knuckles turn white. Basically, just sheer willpower. Trying to avoid some unwanted habit by sheer grinding of your teeth, white knuckling. Uh, in the Bible, self-control is not—it's not just white knuckling through all of life. Um, yeah, think think of a person who maybe whose God-given desire for sexual intimacy has become derailed 
into an unwanted pornography addiction. Uh, they may try to white knuckle it every single day, willing themselves not to click on those websites or whatever. But but uh, white knuckling is not a good and healthy picture of self control or of addiction recovery. Um, because the use of sheer willpower is it's sometimes necessary in the moment. Sometimes it's the right thing to do in the moment because it's all you have is willpower. But it's certainly not a good long-term solution for combating sin or addiction. And it's not what the Bible means when it talks about self-control. So <clears throat> self-control is not triumph of reason over emotion. It's also not triumph of, the, of willpower over desires. Uh, why? why? Why isn't it these things? They sound pretty good, right? <laughs> um, because both of these models are, are, are strictly prohibitive. They focus exclusively on what not to do, what not to say, what not to think. Both are a discipline of subtraction only. Uh, you may actually need to weaken certain desires uh, that have become too strong in your life, but the endeavor should not be a wholly negative endeavor. And I think most of us, this probably rings true for many of us, um, it's very difficult to change in the long term if we're motivated exclusively by a command to stop a behavior. Stop it. Stop it. Don't do that. Uh, human beings do not thrive on abstinence alone. <laughs> um, what we need is to grow in other desires. We need new desires, good desires to grow and overpower and eventually replace the old ones. Sitting in our rooms all alone and saying, no, no, stop. It's not, it's not the way forward. So how does the Bible actually refer to self-control? What is it? What, what are we talking about? Uh, I'm going to go look at two texts from Paul which complement each other very well. The first one is from 1 Corinthians 9, and the second one is from Galatians 5. And hopefully, between these two texts, we'll get a a better sense of what self-control is. My kind of working definition is that, biblically, from a biblical perspective, self-control is to have your desire for some good goal become the motivating force in your life so that you discipline yourself towards achieving that goal. It's to have your desire for some good goal become the motivating force in your life so that you discipline yourself towards achieving it. It's the ability to consistently make choices that are in line with what you most want to achieve. If, if this is how we're conceiving of self-control, you can see how different it is from simply reason winning out over emotion or willpower winning out over desire. Uh, true self-control is all about positive desire. It's about a positive desire you have for your goal. Uh, it's not about suppressing all desire. It's about having the right desire uh, and then living in light of that. It's not just about what you're running from. It's about what you're running towards. So in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul addresses the topic by using the metaphor of an athlete. I'm going to read the, um, the longer 
quote has sort of a, a part that leads up to this. I think that sets it in context, which is helpful. <clears throat> but just look at, I, I want you to, as I read this first paragraph, I want you to notice how goal-driven Paul is. And the way you notice how goal-driven he is, is that um, he says, I did this in order to, and I did this in order to, and I did this, I did this, so that I might, so he's he has a goal that's, that is, um, the driving sort of engine behind what he's choosing to do, right? <clears throat> For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So so run that you might obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest... After preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Fascinating. <laughs> um, what he's saying here. The thing, the first thing that strikes me about this passage, uh, especially for a passage about self-control, the thing that is so striking is Paul's description of how flexible he is. <laughs> You don't think of self-control and flexibility going together. It usually brings to mind all kinds of rigid, regimented behavior. But Paul is talking about self-control, and the result is he's incredibly flexible and adaptable. Uh, yeah, it has not made him into a rigid person. Uh, his self-control makes him willing to be all things for all people able to adapt to any situation, willing to relate to any kind of person wherever he is. Why? Because Paul's extremely passionate and committed to the goal of bringing people to Jesus Christ. And the, the, the last, you know, when it says last after preaching, I myself should be disqualified, that he's also talking about imitating Christ himself, uh, being obedient to God himself. <clears throat> but, this desire to be like Christ and to draw people to Christ is so strong in him that even the smallest hope of winning a person to the Lord motivates him to lay aside his personal preferences, to lay aside his ethnic pride, to venture far from his cultural comfort zone, uh, traveling all over the known world, uh, to strive to find effective ways of communicating across differences. This is what Paul's life was like. Um, 
He's motivated to do all those things, difficult things. They may be sacrifices, but they don't seem like terrible sacrifices to Paul because of how much more he values spreading the gospel, right? <clears throat> so, uh, in verses yes, 24 through 27, this, this second paragraph, um, Paul compares his attitude that he has to the single-mindedness of a competitive athlete. Um, do they train so hard just because they like pain? Is it arbitrary? Is it just something to do? Uh, is it in order to look better in a bathing suit? Is it to get up early in the morning to train because who cares about sleep anyway? No. They, they, the athlete trains really, really hard and makes sacrifices because they want to win the race. It's a very, very distinct, concrete purpose to what they're doing. If there's anything the athlete can do to shave off even a second from their time, they'll do it. They discipline their bodies with this goal in mind and shed everything that will slow them down. Um, to serve God obediently, to become like Christ, and to bring as many people as he can with him. These goals are what it means to win the race for Paul. And these are what motivate him like an athlete to control himself. Uh, the metaphor is not a perfect metaphor. Paul is not saying that our service to God should be competition against other Christians. It's not. That's not the correct way to apply this as a metaphor. Uh, he's. It's really just the passion and the willingness to make sacrifices for a goal. That's the point of similarity that he's working with. So I'm not a competitive athlete. I can't really uh, wax eloquent on this at all. The, the closest analogy that I have in my own mind that comes... That, I don't know. Um, I recently went into a recording studio to record an album with two of my friends. We're in a group together. And uh, we had this studio time booked almost a year out. It was for a week. And we really prepared for a year. Um, We were told by our producer that if you want to have 10 songs on an album, you have to write 100 songs in order to have, in order to be really selective. I've never tried to do that before. Uh, we took a writing retreat, which we'd never done before, just to spend time writing together. We spent hours and hours and hours uh, arranging vocal harmonies, sending recordings, rough demos back and forth and back and forth in order to learn them, um, all with the goal of being really, really prepared for that week when it came. Because you don't want to go into the recording studio after spending this wad of money and waste all your time trying to figure out what you're doing. So... <laughs> uh, once that week began, every day we got up pretty early, drank throat coat tea, uh, also a concoction with ginger and uh, honey and lemon, hot water. Um, we then pray, and then we do vocal exercises for about 15 minutes to warm our voices up. And then throughout the day, we'd be very, very carefully what we did, what we did with our voices. Uh, we wouldn't just yell for no reason. Uh, we wouldn't. We wouldn't even sing full voice when we were practicing a song. We'd sing it gently, uh, rather than staying up late with my friends and smoking a pipe by the campfire, which I would have loved to do. I went to bed relatively early. Uh, why? Why all that? None of these are great sacrifices, by the way. I'm not. Um, I'm not trying to. You know. Um, but why do I bother doing all that stuff? Why did we bother doing all that stuff? Because we really, really, really did not want to lose our voices at the moment when we needed them the most, which was 
<laughs> recording this, these songs. Uh, we wanted to make a good recording, badly. Um, none of these disciplines felt like a sacrifice because we desired the goal so much. It's what you do. Uh, to alter our habits in this way uh, was what in Massachusetts we call a no-brainer. Yeah, of course. Um, so, uh, the call to the Christian life is analogous to this. It's, it's to realign our desires so that all our amazing capacities for love and longing, which we have, are directed towards the Lord and what He loves. All our capacities for love and longing to be directed towards Him and what He loves. In other words, we we change by growing in our desire for what is good so that to do what is good actually becomes a source of pleasure and delight to us. It's not difficult to do the right thing when it's what you most want to do. And that's the type of people we want to become. Um, So to Paul, self-control is what you exercise in the service of your highest desire, your highest priority. Um... Paul also refers to self-control even more famously in the Galatians 5 passage, which is where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit um, in this part of Galatians, he's well, in the whole book of Galatians, Paul is is scolding the people uh, from the Galatian church for relinquishing the freedom that they have in the gospel. Uh, The main main issue at stake is... is, uh, they've sort of gone backwards and have um, begun to obey Mosaic law to be circumcised, to do all these things, to add to their faith. Um, And Paul is trying to convince them that you do that and you're actually rejecting what Christ has done for you. Um, It's to walk back into slavery. So, uh, but in this section in in, uh, Galatians 5... Paul is saying that both the obligation under the law, but also a totally licentious life, uh, both of those are ways of walking back into bondage, of losing the freedom of Christ. He's warning the Galatians that their freedom from the law is not freedom to indulge in all their desires. It's like falling off two sides of the roof. The, the solution is not to put yourself under the authority of Mosaic law. Neither is it to say, it doesn't matter what we do. Woo! And fall off the other side of the roof. There's, there's a, a, a peak. And there's, a, there's more than one way to make a mistake, right? <clears throat> so, to indulge in all of your desires, that would be just to become enslaved in a different way to a different master. Uh, rather, the freedom that you have in Christ is to live by the Spirit and to walk in step with the Spirit. That's that's what he's saying. So in verses 19 through 21, let me just see. I'm sorry, I don't have that part. I'll show you those verses later. Or I'll... I'll uh, um, in any case, in verses uh, 19 through 21, it's before the, it's before the passage about the, the fruit of the Spirit. He lists what he calls works of the flesh. And it's important to note when he talks about the works of the flesh, he's not talking about just sins of the physical body. Some of them are. But by flesh, Paul simply means evil. Anything which is opposed to God. So the works of the flesh do include sexual immorality, but they also include 
all kinds of invisible sins of the heart. Idolatry, enmity, jealousy, envy, those aren't physical sins, those are sins that are inside us. Many of the works of the flesh are also relational, having to do with stoking conflict within the community of believers. So fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions. And then in uh, in verse 22, Paul shifts his rhetoric and offers a sharp contrast to this list of, of terrible things. Uh, the opposite of the works of the flesh is not to work really hard to do good under the law. The opposite of the works of the flesh is rather the fruit of the Spirit. And <clears throat> this is where he writes, uh, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. <clears throat> And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Again, this is part of a much longer passage. But <clears throat> So the work of the Spirit in our lives is like a fruit. We already have a clue that Paul is talking about something qualitatively different than the works of the flesh. It's, uh, the flesh has works. The spirit has fruit. Uh, I think Paul uses this organic metaphor to communicate that the Holy Spirit is at work in us growing something, growing, ripening something that's good and beautiful, delicious. <laughs> Just as I rely on God to grow and ripen the apples in my apple trees outside... Um, so we rely on the Spirit to grow its fruit in us. No matter how carefully I care for those trees and how I prune them and what I do, no matter how much I do to them, I can't make the fruit grow. That's up to God. And it's the same with the virtues that the Spirit is growing in each of us. And this this is hugely encouraging, I think, if we stop and think about it. Um, Another observation about the fruit of the Spirit is, and, we've, and we, we talk about this a lot at Libri, um, they're not multiple separate fruit. The word fruit is singular. Paul is referring to one fruit. Each good virtue is an aspect of the one fruit. It's a, I couldn't resist this, but is anyone familiar with the band, the Danielson family? <laughs> The people who—it's kind of the band that Sufjan Stevens came out of a long time ago. Anyway, they're performed. They're a Christian, very quirky sort of indie Christian thing. I'm not sure how to describe them, but the 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 lead guy would play in this costume, which was his fruit of the spirit tree costume, and all those the nine fruit right there. But like this is a misunderstanding of the fruit of the spirit. <laughs> it's as if you could pluck peace. Yeah. And, and, all, and, and nothing would change. You still have all the rest, right? You know, they're, they're sort of nine totally different things. Um, that's not how Paul is talking about it. Um, I'll just leave that up there because it's such a great picture. Um, if Paul had said, okay, here are the nine fruits of the Spirit, it would have implied that they're all independent, separate things, right? They could stand alone, independently of each other. Like I, I could grow in one, but not the others. I could care about one, but not so much the others. Um, 
This is one of the ways in which the fruit of the Spirit differ from what Paul identifies as spiritual gifts. And it's, it's important to distinguish the difference between these things. In 1 Corinthians 12, I'm not going to look at, look at the passage right now, but I'll just mention it in passing. Spiritual gifts are distinct from, from each other. Uh, I may have more of one gift, you may have more of another. Um, someone may be gifted at teaching or prophesying or all, or all kinds of different things. But together, with our different gifts, we come and offer them to the church and build the church up together. Uh, neither of us shaming the other for their gifts, nor shaming ourselves for, for the gifts that we have or don't have. Uh, it's a picture of unique things that each person in the church has that they're supposed to bring together. The fruit of the Spirit is a different kind of thing. Uh, each virtue is an aspect of the one fruit. And because of that, every Christian should expect to grow in each of them, all of them. You're not supposed to be someone that kind of like, yeah, I like patience, but not so much kindness. Um, To demonstrate how inseparable from each other these virtues are, I think we can stop and reflect this for a few minutes. Uh, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Can you imagine any of these without the rest? Think of, uh, this is maybe... Uh, kind of a lame analogy, but think think of uh, a cake with many ingredients. It's one cake, it's not many cakes, uh, but if you remove any one of the ingredients, the potential goodness of all the ingredients will be wasted. They won't do their jobs. So, if any bakers, I know there are a few bakers in the, in the audience, eggs, flour, milk, sugar, some sort of leavening, baking powder, something like that, Butter, shortening, you know, all these kinds of things that go into a cake. Uh, if you leave any one of these out, first of all, there's no cake. Second of all, all the other ingredients become disgusting. <laughs> they're no longer doing what they're supposed to do. Without flour, you would have a disgusting, over-sweetened omelet, basically. Without eggs or baking powder, you would have an inedible, dense, stodgy, thing that isn't, hasn't risen at all. Without sugar, uh, you get the point. Um, now try to picture a person with all the fruit of the Spirit except one. Choose at random which, whichever fruit you want to subtract. Uh, try to imagine what that person would be like to talk to, to live with, to work with. If you remove any one of these virtues, you, you lose them all, or, or, or they just don't mean anything anymore. Uh, what does love look like when you remove gentleness and kindness? It doesn't. Uh, it's not really love anymore. It becomes maybe, at best, an abstract concept that benefits nobody. Uh, maybe love is sort of uh, positive feelings for mankind, but disdain for real neighbors, if you take away gentleness and kindness from it. <laughs> right? Um an abstraction. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, what does faithfulness look like if you remove patience from it? Again, it doesn't. <laughs> uh, it isn't faithfulness anymore. It would be a commitment to God and to others that refuses to accept the reality of waiting in life. The reality that um, all things, all good things aren't fulfilled immediately. 
There's no such thing as impatient faithfulness. To some degree, our, our faithfulness is corrupted by impatience. I'm not saying that like, if you're at all impatient, you have no faith. But, 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 but you, you get the idea. Like, if they're, they're completely opposed to each other. <clears throat> so what about self-control as, as the final fruit of the Spirit, uh, the final uh, virtue that makes up the fruit of the Spirit? Can you imagine any of the other virtues without self-control? I don't, I don't think we can, because self-control is what we need to consistently put any of them into practice. <laughs> it's, it's what we need to practice all of the other virtues. We need it for endurance. It's what we need to get up in the morning and work on being patient, gentle, joyful, faithful with our families, with our colleagues, with our neighbors, over and over again, day after day after day. Uh, self-control is what we need whenever it becomes difficult or costly to love, to have peace, to be faithful. Whenever I just don't want to be gentle, whenever I really just don't want to be patient, I will give up trying unless I've learned self-control. Christian virtue will not stand up to any obstacle without it. Uh, It's sort of the backbone it's analogous to um, C.S. Lewis's description of courage. I'm not sure where he says this, but uh, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point, which means at the point of highest reality. In other words, uh, courage isn't just one thing along other, alongside other virtues. It's actually what we need in order to live any of the virtues when when it's dangerous to do so. Uh, When it's costly to do so. It's courage that we need. So love is courageous when it's dangerous to love. Right? But, um, how how do we change? This is, I mean, so much of what... uh, comes to mind, I think, for me, when I think about self-control, it's just the frustration of, of my lack of it. And uh, I want to talk, lastly, just about... Oops, that was the Fruit of the Spirit passage. <laughs> Got it? All right, good. <laughs> um, it's a phrase that Schaefer often talked about, active passivity, and there's, there's all kinds of ways to talk about it. Um, but when it comes to our own growth... Our own growth in self-control. There's an active and a passive aspect to it, I think. So, uh, in Galatians 5, Paul teaches us that the Spirit is at work growing it in us, growing the fruit of the Spirit in us. Earlier in that same passage, I didn't, I didn't put it on the screen, but it's in verse 18 of, of chapter 5 in Galatians. Paul writes, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So he's referring to being led by the Spirit, Spirit leading us, which is a passive expression. The Spirit's doing the leading. We receive that by being led, right? But um, lest we conclude that our role is completely passive to sit back and relax and let the Spirit just do its thing, uh, Paul concludes the passage that we just read. If we live by the Spirit, let us 
also keep in step with the Spirit. Which is an active expression. It means that we need to actively follow, walking in the line. I think in the Greek, the implication is like a line that's being drawn that we're supposed to walk along. Uh, we're, we're being given directions. Um, we're being told how, how to live, and we're supposed to walk in line, along that line. <clears throat> so there is a state that we are already in, that of being led, and a challenge to actively go along with it. John Stott wrote a commentary on Galatians. It was very helpful. He says, the Spirit does the leading and we do the walking. <laughs> kind of an interesting way. The Spirit is leading, which is, in a, in, a, in a sense, the Spirit is active and we're passive. But then we also walk, right? The Spirit isn't pulling us in a wagon. <laughs> um, it's impossible to sum up all of Paul's letters in one sentence. <laughs> we shouldn't even try, right? <laughs> But if you really, really had to, <laughs> for some reason, I'm not sure why you would, I would say this. <laughs> In Paul's letters, a major reoccurring theme or message is, be who you already are. Live in line with your identity. In other words, uh, Paul is convinced that the people of God have already been made into a new creation through the gift of Jesus Christ, which is an act of sheer grace given to us. He's absolutely convinced that God sees us as having the righteousness of His own Son right now. This is who we are right now. But, given that this is who we are right now, Paul always turns and exhorts the church to actually live like it is true, because it is. Be who you already are. Live in a way that reflects who you already are. Who you've already been made to be. And this is a really profound progression, I think, when we think about what it means to to change and to grow when we're frustrated. Uh, In that progression, we see, I think, God's wisdom for how we can actually change. Um... The power for change in our lives does not come from motivational speeches that we can do it, getting pumped up and you know flexing our willpower muscles, whatever that is. Um, it comes rather from a deep acceptance and comprehension of the grace of God. Uh, it starts with our need to acknowledge what has already been freely given to us, which is our status as forgiven children of God. We have a status that's been given to us. That's who we are now. Uh, and then this awareness of the gift calls us to a response of obedience motivated not by fear or the hope of acceptance in the future, but motivated by love and joy and thankfulness because of the acceptance we already have. So we strive not for God's approval, but from God's approval. Uh, we have that approval already, but uh, we also strive because of it. And this is not a one-off progression. This progression from you are this already, therefore live it. Uh, that's not a one-off reality as if, we, uh, as if we leave grace behind and progress to a life of obedience. Uh, 
Rather, we spend our whole lives laying hold of grace, resting in it, celebrating it, trying to internalize it while striving to please God. It's, it's a continuous thing happening in the people of God all the time. Uh, and I think this is how change comes about by the grace of the Holy Spirit, slowly, sometimes through struggle. Uh, but in all of it, grace is the source It's not the first step, as in you move on from grace, but it's the source of it all. This gift, uh, this status that we've already been given, out of which flows a new sort of life that we're called to. Uh, What about our daily lapses of self-control that are extremely discouraging to us? I think particularly of just really besetting besetting sins or things that we can never seem to, to, to get rid of in our lives, that we hate. Um, what about the harsh words that I said that are a failure of kindness and gentleness and patience or, or whatever? Uh, what about, yeah, what about the behavior that I said I'd never do again and yet I know perfectly well I will? Um, I don't have time to look at Romans 7, uh, but I'll just mention it because it's such a wonderful picture of the hope that um, the gospel offers us. In Romans 7, Paul's describing basically a civil war inside himself in which the things he wants to do he does not do and the very things he most hates he ends up doing he says this in a couple of different ways he really drives it home he's not being shy (laughs) about his own struggle here he's describing the painful experience of lacking self-control He knows what God wants him to do. He knows what's good. He even wants to do that, and yet he doesn't have the self-control to actually do it. Uh, Paul's hope, and the one he's offering to us, is that even though he sins, it's actually... And this sounds, this sounds weird. It should sound weird to us. Even though he sins... It is actually not him that sins anymore, but his old self, which was crucified with Christ and is dead. It's not the same thing as saying, yeah, it wasn't me, (laughs) and getting off the hook for for being a terrible person. (laughs) But it is saying that uh, in the eyes of God, right now, what I perceive as just being uh, my own twisted, sinful nature has actually already been crucified with Christ. Um, and the good, the even better part is that in his innermost being, he's actually, he actually desires God and belongs to him. His innermost being. This means that our deepest self, the very, very core of who we are, the part that will last forever, is pleasing to God right now. Uh, even in the moment when I might be most frustrated with myself, it's still my innermost being that is with God. So our experience of this Romans 7 tension, this sort of tension of the the war inside us, it's not a sign that Christ has let go of us. It's not a sign that the Spirit is, is not at work in us. On the contrary, it's a uniquely Christian struggle to have. People who have made no commitment to Christ and have not welcomed the Holy Spirit into their lives to do battle with sin do not experience that angst and that tension. 
the tension and frustration is the sign that the Holy Spirit is active and at work and at war. So the internal civil war is not fun. It does not feel good. Uh, but it's infinitely better than being at peace in our hearts because the Holy Spirit is not there. So the experience of peace is not always a good thing, right? Sometimes it's just being oblivious. Uh, the experience of tension in this in this sense that Paul is talking about actually means God is working. Otherwise, I wouldn't experience it as tension at all. Um, I want to conclude now by by basically just kind of giving you a um, a little preview of the next lecture. Um, as far as I can give you, as far as I know. <laughs> uh, the fruit of the Spirit, as well as a lot of other things that Paul writes about, I think including the way he describes love in 1 Corinthians 13, that famous passage about love, but certainly in the fruit of the Spirit, it's a description of Jesus himself. Even though Paul doesn't directly say so. Both the fruit of the Spirit, but it's but it is a description of virtues that Jesus um, had and shows to us. Which means that as we strive to walk in step with the Spirit, in Paul's words, um, we'll actually be imitating Jesus in all these things, including self-control. So this is what I hope to to look at in the next lecture. What did Jesus' self-control look like in his life? What are examples of it? Uh, With what goal is he is is he in control of himself, and in what ways can we imitate him in this? Um, so that's that's where we're headed. But I want to make one one last point. We talked about self control as the ordering and disciplining of your life towards what you most desire to achieve. And so, what was Jesus' goal? What did he most desire to achieve? Uh, what was the driving engine, you know, uh, that motivated him to master himself. For what did he discipline himself? <clears throat> and um, I don't know whether I actually have this text or not. I think I forgot to do it. I'm sorry. You'll just have to come back for the uh, for the last lecture. But this, it's from Hebrews 12, and really, this is this is one of the most wonderful and. Uh, rich, short passages on self-control, really. It's not just about self-control, but this is the very beginning of, of chapter 12 in the book of Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded... So it's just been talking about this whole list of saints going back that that um, ran the race, were given a promise, ran the race suffered and died without ever having seen the fulfillment of that promise. But those people are a cloud of witnesses to us as we try to endure whatever comes. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Very similar language to Paul in 1 Corinthians. But the athlete, disciplined, wants to win, makes sacrifices in order to win, right? Um, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So, I think this passage makes it very clear. The motivating force in Jesus' life was the joy set before him, for which he endured the agony and the shame of the cross and viewed them as worth suffering. Which, what is that joy? It's the joy of having us. It's the joy of having us again. Welcoming us back into God's family. And that was such a profoundly motivating desire that it made the suffering of the cross absolutely worth it. It made the idea of the shame and the misery of it worth it. Um, But also, this text is about how we're supposed to imitate Jesus in that. right? Because it's talking about us running the race and enduring uh, and shedding any things that will slow us down, just like someone running a race looking to Jesus who did that. right? And so, it's also about the imitation of Jesus, specifically in his determination to reach his goal, um, which was the whole um, purpose of self-control. That's where I'm going to end. I don't have anything more to say. But, if anybody wants to stay and chat about it, feel free. Or ask questions. I'm going to sit down. I'm impressed by his ability to hold the guitar at all. (laughs) Not not easy to Uh, at the start of section three, I, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to fill in a part of yeah. my notes that I missed. You said neither emotion nor reason are inherently something, but I missed the word you used. I, I, like inherently trustworthy or reliable. Okay. They're they're um, they can either be um, they can either reflect reality and the truth, or they can deceive us. Okay. There's nothing intrinsically good or bad about the yeah. yeah, Josh. Just a um, just a thought, um, or just re- an invitation to hear your thoughts, I guess. On um, yeah, just another aspect of like our culture with control that I was thinking of is the like perfectly curated life in mm-hmm. some way, mm-hmm. like even uh, um, or, or not just curated, but like. Like a sense of controlling ever, like a fear and a control of everything from yeah. the exact food that we eat at all. Like yeah. Jake and I watched this documentary that had like soccer players in the seventies, and they're just like out partying, drinking, eating pizza, yeah. and then like the next day they're playing. Or like today, yeah. athletes are like have strict diets. They triple yeah. filter their water. They yeah. have like oxygen tanks that they. And it feels like they sleep in like a like, you know, some sort of pool of all, saline yeah, solution. It feels like that's becoming how other people are like approaching yeah. the outside world. Yeah, like just regular yeah. people are just. It's like 
Yeah, wanting not just to control, not just like lose themselves, but actually control everything so they can yeah. be. I just was curious if you optimize and, themselves. Optimize, not yet. Yeah, yeah, optimize, yeah, yeah. or but I think sometimes it's protect too. Yeah. But anyway, That's, I was just yeah, curious it's a great, about yeah. like self control. Like some of, I was just curious. It's really just it was just where my mind was going at totally, one point yeah. in the lecture, and I was just curious if. That's enough. That's a whole area I didn't really even think think about or talk yeah. about at all. But yeah, that you're right. I mean, it's, I think in some ways that's a. Um, or let me just say because yeah, yeah. all self control is so like putting you out, or, or like with people. Like, it's like risk taking to the extreme. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. You can't be you can't be patient if you're not around anybody. You yeah. know what I mean? Like. Um, so I was just in curious to hear yeah. any thoughts. I was just yeah. It's just yeah, no, that's awesome. That is, that's very true. I mean, I think. Um, I'm sure some people in this room could think of many more examples of that kind of thing. I, I, um, I think of that sort of thing as um, very often deeply fear-based uh, in, order, in order to sort of um, perpetually delay death. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, if, I, if I control, and, and, and there's so much information and so much technology out there to help us do that, to regiment our life to every detail, um, to to avoid the inevitable. Just it, you think of all the the self control that's exerted towards trying to remain young and look yeah. young, yeah, yeah, and have a sculpted body and not have wrinkles and not have gray hair and not. Um, and uh, so much money is made by making people fear those things, right? <laughs> and it's it's um, yeah. But I mean, it does it does show the human capacity for incredible discipline. Yeah. Even though it's discipline, this, this is something I didn't talk about much at all. But 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 um, self control, in a sense, is 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 amoral. It doesn't. It's not intrinsically good or intrinsically bad. What I was trying to say is that it's the it's the discipline that you have in order to achieve a goal, and you, yeah. the goal is of such value to you that you are going to make sacrifices and you are going to shed anything that'll slow you down. What that goal is, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, there's an, an illustration I didn't include in here. It was like, well, Osama bin Laden and Mother Teresa were both pillars of self-control. Yeah, 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 yeah. Their their self control led them in completely different directions because they had different goals. Um, so, in that sense, it's amoral. <laughs> it's, That's really interesting. Uh, and so, the goal of just trying to remain young forever, it's impressive in a sense that people have that sort of discipline. Yeah. But is the goal a worth it? B achievable? Yeah. No, I mean it's, it's not achievable. Therefore, it's probably not worth. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know if there's any other yeah. examples of, the, of that. Of just there's, there's so much information about what we can do to perfect our lives. To I, th- I think of the I think of the guy from from uh, Parks and Rec. Oh, uh, uh, Rob. Yeah, 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 yeah. Where he he says this super sculpted, perfect mm-hmm. guy who's like who's who he's just like a specimen of manhood, <laughs> and and he says he there's this quote where he says scientists believe that the first the first human to, to live to be 150 years old has already been born. I believe I am that person. <laughs> and, and his life reflects, he, he's yeah, yeah. super uptight about everything that he did. 
And um, yeah, it's just like okay, that that is self control. But like, what's the what, yeah. what's yeah, the, yeah. the tell us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. Chris. Um, Could you ex- explain a little bit more about what you mean by repression? <laughs> I know that there's a difference between like self-control to such an extent that it becomes damaging almost, mm-hmm. to where you're not almost allowing yourself to live mm-hmm. and enjoy good things. Yeah. Um, that line doesn't seem always abundantly clear. Mm-hmm. So what would you say is uh, some markers when self-control becomes harmful? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. Because, um, and you see this, um, there's a lot of, of popular literature and, and self-help stuff around this very question about the, the benefits of letting go of a need to control. Um, and it's not all about lose control and party and go crazy. It's, it's, it's actually quite sensible things. Like, you know what, maybe you should stop trying to control your mother. <laughs> or, or maybe you just stop trying to control your, you know, it's okay. Let, you know, maybe you'll be a better boss if your employees, if you're less controlling, you know, may, you know, anyway. So there's all kinds of ways in which to, to loosen your grip is, is good and healthy. But I, I, I think it still comes back to what is the, we need some sort of standards for discerning what an appropriate goal is for our self-control. And if we have, uh, all kinds of very, very um, legalistic ideas about what we can and can't do, or, or even um, sort of platonic ideas about the body being inherently problematic and sexuality being inherently dirty or something like that. We could exercise our self-control over those things, but, but it's based on a false theology, a false, a false idea. And so, yeah, it will be damaging because we're not supposed to just crush those things. Um, there's lots of hands. Yeah. Uh, uh, Marty? Well, I was just thinking, I wonder whether it's as simple as the, thing you, the, the difference you make between the negative versus a positive goal. That mm-hmm. repression, I think, of is just purely negative. It's, it's a, Mm. Putting mm-hmm. down, putting down, putting down. Whereas for the sake of putting it down, for, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas self-control, as you described it, is you have, it's for the sake of a positive goal. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and then as you grow, as you grow as a Christian, you're uh, that verse in Proverbs, is it thirty-seven? Um, he will. He will give you the desire. Oh, no, not Father. <laughs> no, no, no. Psalm. He will. He will give you the desires of your heart. He will give you the desires of your heart. Actually, your desires, as you as you grow, God, it isn't. He will give you the desires of your heart. Isn't that? Ooh, desire of my heart is I want to bring Ferrari. <laughs> But rather, and so they'll give it to me. But Your desires will be changing to rather, be in line with what, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, yeah, yeah, to, yeah, exactly. to make you want what? To grow yeah. Yeah. in the fruit of the Spirit. Make yeah. you, you want to love better. Want to be thankful. Yeah. Uh, real quick, Lenny. Yeah. I think it's also a thing that we can talk about in relation to needs and ends. Mm-hmm. That 
self-control is a means. <laughs> um, we shouldn't make it an end. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. And yeah. Your word goal is, yes. is exactly mm-hmm. the thing that controls it. Mm-hmm. It's a means to an end. Yeah. And we got to have the right end. Yeah. <laughs> um, to to see what it actually is going to look like. Yeah. Toward that end. Yeah. Yeah, very helpful. That's a great way to put it. I'm going to write that down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Dick. yeah I, I think I, I look forward to your next talk. Because it seems to me the, if we're talking about the imitation of Christ, we're talking about the one who lived out human excellence. Mm-hmm. He was, he imaged God, but we so often failed to image God, even though we made him image God. Mm-hmm. closer we get to every one of his virtues that we're meant to imitate, the more human we will become. Mm-hmm. We won't be warped out of shape. Yeah. We won't be repressing ourselves in ways we shouldn't repress ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be I mean, love, humility, service, forgiveness, these things that we're meant to imitate in Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more you do them, the more human you will become. Yeah. Everyone. Yeah. And they work for everyone because we're all in the Unlike modern heroism, where you try and imitate, you know, imitate some of the modern heroes, you die. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> the male heroes, you end up in the morgue. Mm-hmm. Uh, you try and do what they do, not with Christ, because what you have within is is human excellence itself, the mm-hmm. fullness, which will make each one of us more more fully human. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge, seems to me, the, the, the nature of what we aim at. Is a huge protection against our imitation crushing us. Yeah, <coughs> definitely. Just think, uh, Kathy. Yeah. Well, I don't. I can't even remember this verse. It goes something like, "It's about the grain of wheat." Maybe you know, Dick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <a> scholar. <laughs> the grain of wheat that falls to the ground, and unless it falls to the ground, it dies. It dies. Mm-hmm. Yet if it dies, it bears much fruit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was thinking about that in relation to Christ Himself mm-hmm. uh, carrying the cross. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. and going just what you said, despising the shame. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And um, I think with self-control, at least for me, it does involve dying to myself. Mm-hmm. You know, in a not not in a like I'm being beat or yeah. you know, but that it requires some work and yeah. that's why we don't like it mm-hmm. you know, we don't enjoy yeah. exercising that but the whole thing of what you were quoting with Paul about mm. the fruit mm. of the spirit mm. reminded me of that verse yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it goes back to what Lenny was saying that like you know you, you, you die to self I wanted to talk about what's the difference between self control and self denial like did not mm-hmm. um, you I'm not, I'm not actually. I don't know why I said that. I don't want to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> but you, di- but you die. You die to self. Is that an end in itself? No, you don't die to self because it's good to die to self. You die to self because you know you will get your life. You know, you you, you die to self because because um, the you lose your life and you will gain it. Actually, yeah. yeah. For the same yeah. reason that Jesus. Yeah. Did that. Because there's a joy set before For the joy you. Set yeah. Before him. Exactly. 
Yeah. To me, just I'm sorry, that Chris left, but it, but uh, something just about the difference between repression, just in, uh, maybe an illustration. Maybe we often think of repression. We often think about sex, like sexual repression, um, and uh, there could be uh, a way of thinking about sexuality that would treat su- suppressing sexual desires as the end in itself. That's bad, suppress it, don't feel that, don't do that, don't act on that. Or there could be a way of practicing self-control over sexual desires because you long to someday be in a healthy marriage. Mm. Right? Two completely different things. <laughs> it's, it's a, there's, an, there's a good and beautiful end uh, that is the motivation for why you would discipline yourself. It's not the, the discipline itself, which is the end. It's the it's the it's the goal. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, I just remembered a very concrete example of um, the difference between self denial, just for the for the purpose of denying yourself, mm-hmm. um, versus denying yourself out of love. For mm. yeah, yeah. And an example that Randall McCauley gave. Um, when he was working at the Manor House, uh, for those who don't know, he was married to one of the Shaker's daughters, and they started the the Manor, the uh, Greenham Libri, Libri in, in England, in the south of England. And where the Manor House is situated is this corner that was very always having car accidents. There were always um, cars ramming into the like little houses, little cottages, and and uh, right at this dangerous corner. And he described. And, you know, on Sunday lunch, they're just sitting down for a lovely Sunday dinner, hot chicken and gravy and rolls and everything. And suddenly there was this this um, familiar crash sound of a car that had crashed into a house or a tree or something like that. The house. And, of course, they jump up, leave their wonderful warm dinner mm. at the table and, said, and run to help. And... It's several hours later before they get back to eat their cold, <laughs> sodden rolls. Um, and you just say that as, as I think just a very good, very concrete example of the difference between they didn't jump up from the table out of self-denial. I am going to deny myself this, you know, out of the, 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 per, the goal was not self-denial. Mm-hmm. The goal of jumping up and leaving the meal was somebody needed help. Yeah. You know, they had to run and help yeah. someone who was in trouble. I was this is, it reminds me of the, the very opening paragraph of The Weight of Glory, where he talks about how um, today a virtue is lifted up, the virtue that's lifted up is unselfishness, whereas in the past it was love. Yeah. You know, as if, as if uh, to be unself, as if to deny yourself something is intrinsically a good thing. And he says that's a, that's a stoic idea. Yeah. You know, it doesn't... Who cares? It, love was was what right. we were supposed to deny ourselves for. It was love, you know, in order to actually care for somebody else. It's not that there was any intrinsic virtue in in uh, denying yourself something. Yeah. 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 Although it would, excuse me, John. Yeah, of course, go. Yeah. Uh, although it would be maybe an example of what you were talking about when you said that we already are. In and of ourselves, by the grace of God, um, so unselfish. How, I mean, how, how do you mean? I'm sorry. 
that we would get up and go see about the car accident instead of linger so over say, our say, meal. Say, my meal first and then I'll go right. somebody right. 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 Yeah, I'll mm-hmm. eat first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that, yeah. that is an example. Just, yeah, I mean, I mean it's, and it probably, I imagine, knowing Randall and, you know, it probably was not something that he would have viewed as being a huge heroic sacrifice. It was the right. obvious thing to do. Right. Because he had trained in that as a discipline of, yeah. of loving people and, and being concerned for people and prioritizing <laughs> thing, you know, people. Yeah. I apologize. We have to go. No, that's all right. Stay warm. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Yeah, good luck, yeah. I think uh, maybe we'll wrap it up. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Very good.